Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. All right, would you guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, it's a privilege to gather. It's a privilege to be encouraged by one another. It's a privilege to have friendships and families, but it is more of a privilege to have ears to hear the word of God, which changes our hearts, saves us from sin, and commissions us to a life of radical new experiences of grace. So we pray today that as we look at your word, that it bears fruit, fruit that, as Jesus said, is good fruit from a good root that is rooted not in us, but as we just sang, but through Christ in me. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So we are finishing um, Jesus' sermon to his disciples in Luke 6 as we've been working through the gospel of Luke. And this whole chapter has keyed on Jesus' interaction with his disciples so as to give us a framework of what a culture of following Jesus is like. Christianity is not mere confession. It's a life of following. It's a life of changing And in my outline of this book, as we've sought to go through it, this chapter is called in my notes, Jesus's handbook of discipleship. He's intending to show us what it's like to follow him. And this same sermon is expanded in Matthew's gospel in what is perhaps more famously called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew includes a little bit more of this teaching by Jesus. Luke has pared it down a little bit, but what we have in Luke's account is kind of the greatest hits of Jesus's greatest sermon. We have all of those wonderful pop tracks of Jesus's teaching that have been recorded for history. We've got the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep. We've got the call to love your enemies. We have the caution of judge not lest you too be judged. To know this sermon is to know some of the most popular passages of Jesus' teaching to those who are inside the church and those who are even outside the church. But it's also to know the true and essential DNA that Jesus wants his own followers to know about what a life of discipleship is like. Which means to actually apply this passage is to live your life in an incredibly otherworldly manner. When we boil down and assess what Jesus has been teaching us with these last three weeks, we've encountered three profound pictures. We've seen first a humble view of our own experiences in the Beatitudes. In a call to love our neighbors, we've seen a humble view of others. And then in a call to not judge, we see a humble view of ourselves. And can you imagine what might be different in your life if we actually applied those truths? What would it look like if we genuinely and sincerely considered our experiences of pain and pleasure and sorrow and joy through the lens of eternity? Knowing that this world on account of sin is broken and heaven is not here. But one day, all sin and evil will be wiped out and goodness will be established in the kingdom of God. What if the gospel gave us a framework to actually distrust our experiences out of trust for the cross? 
Meaning that on the cross, we see that life often springs from death and surprising joy often out of sorrow. What would it look like if it, in the heat of the moment, when we're cut off in traffic, when we are hated by our family, when we are offended or insulted, we consider that we did all of those things to God in our sin, and yet God loved his enemies. Through Jesus Christ on the cross, he sought to do good to them, to forgive them, and to give them what you and me did not deserve. How would we help others if we understood that we ourselves are works in progress? What if we move towards the speck in our brother's eye, keenly aware that the church is together, you and me and us, fighting for change as simultaneously saints and sufferers? What if we moved towards people seeking to advance gospel care instead of trying to advance our own agendas to feel better, more superior, or more perfected? It's as I sat in the conclusion of Jesus' sermon this week that I think the most fitting name for Jesus' sermon here is the most dangerous sermon ever known. And it's because this sermon is so well known that it's dangerous. And Jesus seems to assume these built-in traps. We see this in how he concludes in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Here, Jesus' conclusion to his sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke out against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. How many of us know this sermon, know these commands, and take comfort and assurance in knowing it without ever choosing the path of listening to it. To miss where Jesus lands the plane here at the end of his sermon is to miss the flight of his sermon altogether. Jesus doesn't simply want our minds to be informed. He wants our lives to be different by the power of the gospel that changes our hearts through faith in Jesus. And so having looked at a humble view of our experiences, a humble view of others, and a humble view of ourselves, what Jesus presents as the climax of his sermon today is actually a humble view of God's word. It's a view which protects us from the danger of knowing by holding out the need for listening obedience. And it's this path of discipleship which is the safest and most joy-producing labor any of us could ever endure. And so our big picture today is this, that following Jesus is seeing Jesus's words and his work as our greatest need and our deepest joy. 
Following Jesus is seeing Jesus's work and words as our greatest need and deepest joy. And we're going to see this in three parts. First, we're going to see Jesus's ideal path for discipleship. Google discipleship online and you will find countless resources of what it looks like to be a disciple. Jesus gives us his path today. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. There's no reoccurring costs. It's right here in verses 46 and 47. Then in verses 48 through 49, we're going to see the endurance of gospel-driven obedience. And then lastly, we're going to look at the whole of this passage and what we read right before this and actually see the treasure of Jesus' words. And so the first thing we encounter in this text is a wonderfully helpful guide for any of us who want to follow Jesus. And this is Jesus' ideal path of discipleship. Our first point today, the path of discipleship. And Jesus presents this path to us couched in a warning. Read with me again this warning in verses 46 and 47. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. So who is Jesus writing to? Who is he seeking to warn? He's seeking to warn all and any who know him. He's writing to those who call out to him, not stranger, stranger, but Lord, Lord. People who know Jesus and this title that they use not only communicates that these people have given their authority over to Jesus. That's what lordship implies is that he is Lord and you are not. But the repetition of this title implies a special sense of communion. In the Hebrew language, when you repeat somebody's name, it expresses this unique sort of intimacy of deep knowledge of one another, of relational beauty. And Jesus' point here is simple. He's saying, if you claim to be under my authority, if you claim an intimate relationship with me, but if you do not listen to my commands or my words, you do not know me and you do not trust me. You see, one of the greatest challenges the church faces is how easy it is to elicit a confession of the mouth and how difficult it is to elicit a confession of the heart. Here we see the danger of having healthy tongues but deaf ears. My family was in Phoenix earlier this swing in, or spring, and we were driving on their massive interstates trying to navigate to where we were going to go, and we were in a lane that we thought was going to take us to our desired destination. But after a while, the lane we were on peeled off from the rest of the interstate and we went somewhere we never wanted to go. We didn't get to where we wanted to be. I mean, we did eventually because I'm here now, so crisis averted. But in thinking we were in the right lane, we actually didn't get to where we were going. Jesus' words here, right now, ought to be a pause for anyone who thinks they're in the right lane. Just a quick moment of sobriety. Because actually in Matthew's account, where it's not only those who come to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, but it's those who look at their life and say, look at all that I did for you. It's those who were in the wrong lane. It's those who didn't get where they thought they were going, regardless of how convinced they were in their own mind that they were on the right path. But the beauty of what Jesus is doing here is he's not seeking to make us an anxious people. In fact, he's actually trying to give us confidence. He's trying to have you look at your life and say, is this the right lane? 
Can I cry out, Jesus, Jesus, Lord, Lord, and know that I am in the exact right place to get to where I've always wanted to be? And this is why after the warning, why do you say to me and not do what I tell you? He states it in the positive. Look at this positive view of discipleship in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. As I sat with this text this week, I was struck by how profound this verse is for two specific reasons. One, it is really the clearest and simplest presentation of discipleship from Jesus himself. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's also profound in that it expresses who might follow Jesus. Did you see that? We see it in verse 37. Who can be a disciple? Everyone. Who can come to Jesus? Verse 37. Everyone. Anyone. You see, in a world that calls and clamors for inclusivity and equality, there is nothing more inclusive than the gospel. Who might be included in following Jesus? Well, what have we seen so far in the book of Luke? We've seen struggling fishermen and sickly widows. We've seen deceitful tax collectors and lifelong priests. We've seen barren women and betrothed teenagers. We've seen political zealots and demon-possessed men. Who can come to Jesus? Someone who's raised in a Christian home, who perhaps didn't drink a single drop of alcohol their whole life, as well as someone who has gotten drunk and passed out in a ditch, maybe even this weekend. That's who might come to Jesus. Who can come to Jesus? The heterosexual soccer mom who waited to have sex until she was married and only faithful to her husband. But also the homosexual man who is active in pursuing his sexuality from a young age. He can come to Jesus. Who can come to Jesus? The homeless man who suffers with mental illness, who sleeps on your porch and blights our streets. He can come to Jesus. The businessman who makes more money than you could ever imagine, he can come to Jesus. Who can come to Jesus? I can, you can, everyone can. And it is the broad call of the gospel that confounds the Pharisees and the legalists that comforts those who are aware of their sin and commissions the global call of evangelism. But though this call is unconditional in its scope, it is conditional in its response. Don't we see that in its text? The call of the gospel is a call without definition. Who can hear? Who can respond? Anyone. What station of life, what race, what socioeconomic bracket do you have to be to follow Jesus? It is without definition, but it is not, as we see in this text, without distinction. Did you see that? Everyone, broad and universal, who, Jesus introduces a condition and then gives three things. Who comes to me, who hears my words and does them. Anyone you, if you're here today and you wonder if your sin is too big, if your wounds are too painful, or if your station in life was too lowly, if you can come to Jesus, this is what it looks like to come. Anyone who comes to Jesus, who hears his word and does them, that's Jesus's path of discipleship. 
And here's where good Bible study helps us. Remember who Jesus was speaking to at this point. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter six, look at what we see before Jesus launches into this sermon in verses 17 and 18. And he, that's Jesus, came down with them, and that is with the disciples who were with him on the mountain. And he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So there's kind of three groups of people in Luke's account here. There are the disciples who are with Jesus on the mountain. There's a broader group of disciples and a broader crowd who are here on the plains and they came to hear. Don't we have a greater context for what Jesus is now saying in verse 47? Jesus is warning of those who are willing to come. Those who are willing to hear Jesus's word. And he's saying, but if you are willing to come to me and if you are willing to hear me, do not make the mistake of being unwilling to listen to me. Ezekiel describes this in Ezekiel 33, verses 30 and 31. Listen to the foolishness of these people. As for you, son of man, so God is telling Ezekiel the kind of people he's going to encounter. Your people who talk together about you by the walls And at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word of the Lord is, what comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. There are those who come There are those who hear, and there are those who do nothing. The Greek word for hearing is akouin. The Greek word for obedience is hyperkouin. In other words, Jesus is not only after those who hear, he's after those who hyperhear. He's after those who take what is given to them and realize that knowledge, if not applied, is not knowledge at all. He's after those who come to him because he alone can save. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. He's after those who come to him and listen to his word because as Peter says, no one else has the words of life. But he's also after those who come to him because of his exclusivity, who listen to him because of his ability, but who apply Jesus's people for their own sustainability, for their own joy and their own safety. Who would desire to go to a concert at the Kettle House Amphitheater only to plug your ears, unless it was like some terrible artist that you don't like. We go to concerts to hear. Who in responding to Jesus would seek to close their ears to the wonderful words of their Savior King? Three times in this text, Jesus is speaking about doing something as a result of his words. When we think of obedience, we think about doing something, we often, maybe I'm casting myself, we often think of wooden mechanics. Sergeant says something, you obey. Parents say something, you obey. It's just what you do. But Jesus is in this text opening our eyes to the joyful realities of the life of discipleship. The Greek word for do here in this passage is the same word which is other 
Translated in other places as create, as craft, as produce. In other words, the gift of redemption in the work and word of Jesus is so profound that we now as believers have a privilege to create something beautiful in our life of following Jesus. It is faith in Jesus' perfect obedience alone which saves us, but this salvation gives us the tools we need to live a life of creatively beautiful obedience. Have you ever watched like a game show where there's a cash prize and as they're filling time to keep you entertained, they go and ask the contestants, hey, what would you do if you win this money? And we hear their plans. We hear their dreams. We hear their aspirations. If only they could have the riches they need to do it. Do you realize that when you come to Jesus in hearing his words, by salvation through faith alone, you have the richest resource in this world and Jesus wants you to do something with it. He wants you to create out of the ashes of sin a glorious life of listening. Here we see that obedience is an act of grace-driven creativity where we have the privilege of looking to Jesus and saying, what do I get to create next? Where do I get to build beauty of obedience in a world of sin and tragedy? This is why anyone can come to Jesus. A life of following Jesus is not about who you were because none of us were good enough. A life of following Jesus is about who the gospel of grace is going to make you out to be as our faith in our Savior continues to save us and sanctify us. This is the path of discipleship. Come to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And do something with it. Now Jesus gives us an illustration. What are we to do? What are we to create in our life of obedience to Jesus's word. There's one big theme, and what is that? We're to create a refuge. This is our next point, the endurance of gospel-driven obedience. Pay attention to the illustration Jesus uses in his own words in verses 47 through 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against it, or against that house, and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, that is not do Jesus' word, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So as your pastor, I aim to be honest in the pulpit. That's, I wrote initially, like, if I were to be honest, and I would hope that that's not a condition <laughs> that I have to work myself into. But as I'm being honest with you, I could tell you that the last three years of my life have been three of some of the hardest years of my life. And yet this passage, the truth that Jesus is trying to give to his disciples today is the most transformative and profound truth that has spoken comfort to my soul. If I could tell anyone the biggest joy, the biggest privilege, the most wonderful truth about following Jesus, it's this, that there is no sweeter comfort 
than the laboring to obey Jesus in the storms of life. The metaphor Jesus used is a metaphor that speaks daily to my sinful, anxious, pessimistic, and suffering heart. If I had to point, if you came to me and you say, why should I believe the gospel? Why is Jesus glorious? Why is the Christian life the best of all possible lives? I would point to this text. Nothing has fundamentally reshaped my heart, my hope, my suffering, and my joy that it is in the words of Jesus and entrusting those words exclusively that they are always and only for my good. That every comfort of the world That every anxious longing of your heart, that every dream of despair or hope of happiness you might ever have apart from faithfulness to Jesus cannot endure you. When you hear that I say that it's a reliance on Jesus' word that is always and only for your good, you might think that I'm specifically talking about the Bible. The Bible is God's word. I love the Bible. We need more of the Bible. Our kids need more of the Bible. Our church needs more of the Bible. But what my soul needs more, what my wife needs more, what my kids need more, what you need more is not only a heart who loves God's word, not only a heart that hears God's word, but a heart that obeys God's word, a heart that hyper hears it, a heart that is built upon it. Consider the nature of Jesus' illustration, and doesn't this fly in the face of how we view obedience? If I asked you right now to describe in an illustration or an anecdote, what it would look like to not obey God, what kind of illustration would you give? I thought of potentially two this week. One, we're building a garage at my house, and right now we've got dirt piles in it. And we often say to our kids, don't play in the dirt piles. And what do they do? They go play in the dirt piles. And perhaps not obeying God is like the child to whom dad has said, don't play in the dirt pile. But they're outside and the dirt pile just seems so lovely, so wonderful. And so they go and they begin to play on it. But then dad notices and he opens the slider and he says, get out of the dirt pile, come inside in that perfectly parental condescending tone. And so what do you do? You come inside and you know you've disappointed your parent. You knew it was wrong. But the promise of that joy was just so present. And you know he'll love you anyway. And so it's kind of this weird thing of like, we disobey God and we know God is displeased with us, but sometimes it's worth it to leave obedience untouched and to try and sneak a little joy that comes through disobedience. Or perhaps you think of it as an employee who knows exactly what to do to avoid getting fired while also still getting your paycheck. You know you ought to show up within a reasonable amount of time, care for your major tasks at work, But when your employer or your manager isn't around, you know how to do just as little to get by. You see those other people at work who are going above and beyond. They're laboring, they're scrubbing, they're acting like that employer is behind them the whole time. They're physically exerting themselves. And yet, when you go pick up your paycheck, their pay stub's the exact same as your pay stub. And so you're like, why try? If God gives grace then why do I need to try harder? I should avoid the big taboo sins. We need to create these lists of what the biggest sins are. Let's avoid those sins. And then for the rest of it, I don't need to busy myself with the details. But did you see the nature of Jesus's illustration? 
The man who obeys is like a man who works hard. That's very clear. But the man who obeys is like a man who finds safety, shelter, belonging, and purpose in a world which seeks to sweep it all away. The person who obeys isn't the one who simply disappointed God or appeared to be a hypocrite to others. The one who, obe- who disobeyed ended in individual, personal ruin. You want to know a big thing about God? He doesn't need your obedience. God is not a tooth fairy who gets weak when people don't obey him or believe in him. God is infinitely sufficient in triune perfection for all glory. He does not need you to acknowledge his existence to be great. God does not need your obedience. You do. Obedience in this parable from Jesus himself is a matter of your own personal joy and endurance. If you'll notice, each man builds a house. Why? Because we know the world we live in is unsafe and inhospitable. We all know that. Regardless of what you think about the gospel, all of us are building a place. We are building places, budgets, homes, relationships, vacations, Netflix queues, resumes, and employment statuses that bring us relief, order, and peace. And yet despite our labor, we know two things innately which we can turn to our children to see. The first is that what we want in life does not come naturally. I've had the privilege of having four children born to me, being in the delivery room. And the first thing those kids do is cry. Why do we cry? Because we cannot provide for ourselves. The first cry you ever utter is the most honest confession of your limitations in finitude. What you need in life, you on your own, are woefully unable to provide. Our hope is external. And we might be able to get our own food later on. But can you find your own blank? Is it natural to you? We know how difficult this is because the other truth, as soon as you get what you think you want, everything else in the world becomes a threat to it. You get the bottle, and what does your older sibling do? They take the bottle. You get the blanket, and what does the blanket do? It begins to tear. Milk spoils, floods rise, rivers break. So what do we do? We build. The question of this reality is not who does the work of building. We all build. The question is whose joy lasts, whose security endures. Make no mistake, one man works harder than the other. And that is even more clear in the Greek. When we read in English, it looks like there is an, a verb, he dug, and then an adjective, deep. But in Greek, it's two verbs. In other words, he dug, and then he dug deeper. He was exerting himself. Why? This man wanted something that lasted. He dug until he found something beneath the ground itself, something solid. The other man, the fool in this text, he did not dig. But you know what he did? He built on the ground. And you know why that's dangerous? Because the ground is experientially solid, isn't it? Feels solid to me. He didn't build on jello. He didn't build on the water. That's dumb. He built on the ground. This is our greatest temptation. To look at what seems to be solid beneath our feet, and to say, I can build on this. 
This can satisfy me. This seems durable. But to anyone who has ever built, you know the foolishness of not laying a foundation. But it's easy to skip the foundation and say in your own life, I can go to church. I've thrown up the walls. I can read my Bible. I've strung up my roof. But my foundation is going to be in the hopes of this world. Though I go to Jesus for salvation, that's the house I live in. I need it. It's got the walls and the roof. That's good. I turn to family life for satisfaction, for good employment, for safety, to adventure for purpose, to sex for relief, to a strong government for peace. But those cannot save you. Those will not endure. Yet often we view obedience kind of like the unsaved Martin Luther at this point in his life. He went and walked home to his family after being in law school, and a great thunderstorm came, so terrifying that he thought he was going to die. And so he cried out to the patron saint, St. Anne, and said, God, if you deliver me, I'll become a monk. We've all been there, right? If you deliver me, I'll become a monk. And we do the same. We see obedience as the fruit of deliverance. We see the storms, we see the floods, and we say, God, if you deliver me from these, then I'll obey. If you meet this condition, I'll also meet mine. But don't miss Jesus's point here. Obedience and listening to Jesus's word was not the fruit of deliverance, was it? It was the very means of their deliverance. It was the obedience of listening and doing that caused him to endure. It's the one who does the work of reaching into the depth of the firmness of the gospel, who refuses to settle for the topsoil and loose gravel of the world, who endures the best we have, the most powerful resource God has given you for your safety is obeying and staying in obedience to Jesus. The greatest question you could ever ask yourself when all else seems lost is, am I listening to Jesus? Am I obeying Jesus? Anything else is great ruin. There are two realities in this text. There is those who labor greatly out of the grace that Jesus provides and those whose ruin is great. The call to obey Jesus is a weighty and difficult call because it's not calling you to trust yourself. This is why I can stand here today and I can call all of you to obey Jesus without being legalistic. Legalism says my obedience is what saves me. The gospel is the opposite of that. Jesus is what saves you. Jesus isn't asking you to trust yourself. He's asking you to trust the bedrock. He's asking you to give your life to the rock. He's not asking you to trust in your obedience or in your faith. He's asking you to trust in the God who supersedes all of it. What do you think the greatest threat to the Christian worldview is. Today we might look at our culture and we might talk about the gender confusion that's out there rewriting who God has created us to be. Perhaps speaking as Westerners, we see the power-hungry drift of both major political parties who are each grabbing power in ways opposite each other. Ten years ago, it was homosexual marriage. 
20 years ago, it was evolution in public schools. 30 years ago, it was communism. 100 years ago, it was imperialism. 200 years ago, it was enlightenment. And 1,000 years ago, it was the threat of Islam. All of those pose threats, yes. But here Jesus speaks to us with stunning clarity what the greatest threat that has endured throughout millennia is to a Christian worldview. And this is what it is. It is one who wishes to build a house that in every way appears to be built for the pleasure of God, but has as a foundation something which is not fidelity to Jesus. It's someone who builds a house that looks like a religious institution, that looks like it is dwelling where God wants you to dwell without realizing our greatest treasure, our deepest joy, and our enduring hope is exclusively and entirely reliance upon Jesus' work and his word. What the Tower of Babel shows us is not that our problem is to reach the heavens. That is God's grace. That we all have an inward desire to connect with God is the lingering image of God that lay in the heart of every person ever created. The problem is not the desire. The problem is the direction. At Babel, man sought by man's ability to solve their problem by going up. But the gospel calls us first and foremost to dig down. To dig down deep into our weaknesses. To dig deep into our limitations and see that it is the rock and that rock alone that allows us to ascend to the heavens. The Christ who came down is the grace that brings us up. What a comfort is this for us who are realists, who know the joy-robbing, bank-breaking floods of life. The most dangerous Christian is one who thinks that this world is heaven. This world is broken. Sin explains it, and obedience endures us in it. If your hope is that here in this life, all of these storms will cease, you will find yourself anxious, exhausted, frustrated, and doubtful. God has never promised that this side of glory. The hope of the Christian is therefore in how you endure this, that in the midst of what rages and beats and destroys and terrifies, we have a refuge. When the storms of life assail us, when the sun taps our strength, we are called to remember that this work is enduring work. When we are struck in the storms of life, we know thousands of thoughts begin to flood our minds. But here is the guide rope of Jesus' grace. When everything seems convoluted, we lean into obeying Jesus' word. When it seems ridiculous to question your own experiences because it seems so powerful and it seems so right and it seems so real. And eternity seems like at best an eternity away. When we wrestle to apply the truth of glorification, what do we do? We lean into obedience of Jesus' word. When it seems impossible to love our enemies in the face of real harm, real things where we feel vindication rising up inside of us, real calamity, real evil, something that really needs judged, what do you do? You lean into obeying Jesus' words. When it seems scary to address your own sin and to help others do the same, what do you do? 
you lean into obeying Jesus's words. When it seems you're alone, wounded, and vulnerable, and nothing seems more dangerous than dying to yourself, what do you do? You lean into obeying Jesus's words. Why? Because we know that though the shovel gets heavy and the sun gets hot, those who seek to obey Jesus suffer no loss. Look at Psalm 84, 10 through 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Brothers and sisters, pay attention to the metaphors of grace. In the next life, the gospel is a complete escape and a total elimination of all the threats of life. But in this life, what is it? A shield. It is something where the forces of this world will beat and blow and bang. And what is our hope? That Jesus has called us to his righteousness to stand. That we can say everything seems terrifying, everything seems overwhelming, everything seems difficult, but to obey is to be in the safest place for Christ my refuge will endure. One day the storms will stop. Right now they have power, but not power enough to shake this house. In seasons of difficulty, we want to grab the rest of the world, but Jesus calls us to grab the shovel of meaningful obedience. In the fourth century, the pastor Athanasius wrote to his own church these words of encouragement. Understanding the word, do not faint under trials. Although from time to time, circumstances of great trials are set against them, yet continue faithful. So passing through water and fire, they find relief and duly keep the feast. He's talking about obedience there. Offering prayers with thanksgiving to God who has redeemed them. In light of this, I want to read what Johnny read right before this. The verses which immediately precede Jesus' conclusion, which are Luke 6, 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Good trees bear good fruit. Good people out of good treasure speak good things. But what's lost on us in English here is that when Luke says the house didn't shake because it had been well built, it literally reads the house didn't shake because it had been good built. It's the same Greek word kalos used to describe the good tree that is above, the good fruit. What is our foundation on which we build? 
What is our good foundation? It is the good work of Jesus himself. This is our final point in closing this morning. This is the treasure of Jesus' words. You see, we are not to find hope in our own obedience. We are to find hope in the foundation on which your obedience rests. This promise, this enduring hope is only as good as Jesus is good, but Jesus is good. And do you realize that this good Jesus, what is he doing? He is sharing out of the treasure of his heart. Jesus cannot, being the ultimate good tree, do anything but share the good treasure that is in his heart. What does Jesus want from you? What does Jesus want you to see as infinitely valuable and soul-stirring in the moments of trials of life? He wants you to see the beautiful joy of laboring in gospel obedience. And here's the beauty of our king. He did it. Jesus himself proved it. Jesus came to our broken world and obeyed perfectly where you could not. He died sacrificially, the scornful death of our sinners. Our ruin became his reality. He was counted among the sinners, numbered among the transgressors, mocked as a guilty man, though he stood innocent, murdered as a criminal, though he was the creator. And in this obedience, he found joy. Not because the suffering was good. Not because the sorrow was good. Not because evil didn't exist. But because the God in which he trusted his loving father who he knew so intimately proved faithful that Jesus's obedience led to resurrected glory. A new body ascended to the right hand of God, the father almighty. And that one day that risen ruling king is going to bring a reigning redeemed reality. Jesus is our foundation because he proved it faithful. The foundation lasts. The rock holds because Jesus rose again. So what do we do? We build. We dig Look how Paul puts this, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, that is the foundation of Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Brothers and sisters, there's a way to skate into glory when built on Christ with the scant foundation of obedient sticks and twigs, but laid out in front of us is building with materials that will endure for a joy that sustains and an endurance which gives us hope. Will you build by digging deeply? I heard it said that for the Christian, everything begins and ends with God said. God said, this is for our joy 
Jesus said, this is the treasure of my heart that you would seek to be secure. I want to close with a poem by John Bunyan, which is fitting for this analogy Jesus uses. He's describing the hope that is in the church, that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says. He says, this house you may be sure will always stand. She's builded on a rock, not on the sand. Storms, rain, yea, floods have oft upon her beat. Yet stands she. Here's proof she is no cheat. Fear not, therefore, in her for to abide. She keeps her ground, come weather, wind, or tide. Her cornerstone has many times been tried. Safety? Where is it, if not here? God dwelleth in her, doth for her appear. To help her early in her foes confound, and unto her will make his grace abound. Safety is here, and also that advance will make a beggar sing and a cripple dance. To those who come here, to those who hear, believe and obey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it shows that our problem is not in our ability, for there can be no simpler solution than come, hear, and do. And yet the problem is a heart that in coming we do not see, in listening we do not hear, and in not doing we find that sin has gripped our hearts. But thanks be to God who has delivered us in Jesus Christ, who opens the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, and enlivens the heart of the dead. Lord Jesus, fix our hope on the rock. Give us strength to obey so that we might have joy, calling others to the refuge which we ourselves have experienced as faithful and true. We pray this in your name. Amen.